Section 4 of The Black Poodle and Other Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carmen H. The Black Poodle and Other Tales by F. Anstey. The Story of a Sugar Prince, Part 1. A Tale for Children. Of course, he may have been really a fairy prince, and I should be sorry to contradict anyone who chose to say so. For he was only about three inches high, he had rose-pink cheeks and bright yellow curling locks. He wore a doublet and hose which fitted him perfectly, and a little cap and feather, all of delicately contrasted shades of blue. And this does seem a fair description of a fairy prince. But then he was painted very cleverly but still only painted on a slab of prepared sugar and his back was a plain white blank while the regular fairies all have more than one side to them and i am obliged to say that i never before happened to come across a real fairy prince who was nothing but paint and sugar for all that he may as i said before have been a fairy prince and whether he was or not does not matter in the least for he at any rate quite believed he was one. As yet there had been very little romance or enchantment in his life, which, as far as he could remember, had all been spent in a long shop full of sweet and subtle scents where the walls were lined with looking-glass and fitted with shelves, on which stood rows of glass jars containing pastilles and jujubes of every colour, shape, and flavour in the world. A shop where, in summer, a strange machine for making cooling drinks gurgled and sputtered all day long, and in winter the large plate glass windows were filled with boxes made of painted silk from Paris, so charmingly expensive and useless that rich people bought them eagerly to give to one another. The prince generally lay on one of the counters between two beds of sugar roses and violets in a glass case, on either side of which stood a figure of highly coloured plaster. One was a major of some unknown regiment. He had an immense head, with goggling eyes and a very red complexion, and this head would unscrew so that he could be filled with comfits, which, though it hurt him fearfully every time this was done, he was proud of, because it always astonished people. The other figure was an old brown gypsy woman in a red cloak and a striped petticoat, with a head which, although it wouldn't take off, was always nodding and grinning mysteriously from morning to night. It was to her that the prince, for we shall have to call him the prince, as I don't know his other name, if he ever had one, owed all his notions of fairyland and his high birth. You let the old gypsy alone for knowing a prince when she sees one, she would say, nodding at him with encouragement. They've kept you out of your rights all this time, but wait a while and see if one of these clumsy giants that are always bustling in and out doesn't help you. You'll be restored to your kingdom, never fear. But the major used to get angry at her prophecies. It's all nonsense, he used to say. The boy's no more a prince than I am, and he'll never be noticed by anybody, unless he learns to unscrew his head and hold comfits like a soldier and a gentleman. However, the prince believed the gypsy, and every morning as the shutters were taken down and grey mist, brilliant sunshine or brown fox stole into the clothes shop, he wondered whether the day had come 
which would see his restoration to his kingdom. And at last the day really came. Someone who had been buying sugar violets and roses noticed the prince in the middle of them and bought him too, to his immense delight. What did the old gypsy tell you, eh? said the old woman, wagging her head wisely. You see, it has all come true. Even the major was convinced now, for before the prince had been packed up, he whispered to him that if at any time he wanted a commander-in-chief, why he knew where to send for him. Yes, I will remember, said the prince, and you, he added to the gypsy, you shall be my prime minister. For he was so ignorant of politics that he actually thought an old woman could be prime minister. And then, before he could finish saying goodbye and hearing their congratulations, he was covered with several wrappers of white paper and plunged into complete darkness, which he did not mind at all. He was so happy. After that he remembered no more until he was unwrapped and placed upright on the top of a dazzling white dome, which stood in the very centre of a long plain where a host of the strangest forms were scattered about in bewildering confusion. On each side of him, tall twisted trunks of sparkling glass and silver sprang high into the air, and from their tops the cool green branches swayed gently down, while round their bases velvet-petted flowers bloomed in a bed of soft moss. Farther away an exquisite temple, made of a sort of delicate gold-coloured crystal, rose out of the crowd of gorgeous things that surrounded it, and this crowd, as the prince's eyes became accustomed to the splendour, gradually separated itself into various forms of loveliness. He saw high curiously moulded masses of transparent amber, within which ruby and emerald gems glowed dimly. Mounds of rose-flushed snow and blocks of creamy marble, and in the space between these were huge platforms of silver and porcelain, on which were piled heaps of treasures that he knew must be priceless, though he could not guess what they were all used for. But amidst all these were certain grim shapes. Some seemed to be the carcasses of fearful beasts, whose heads had all been struck off, but who had evidently shown such courage in death that they had earned the respect of the brave hunters who had vanquished them, for rosettes had been pinned on their rough breasts, and the stiffened limbs were bound together by bright hue ribbons. Then there was one monstrous head of some brute larger still, which could not have been quite killed even then, for its tawny eyes were still glaring with fury. The prince could easily have stood upright between its grinning jaws if he had wanted to do so, but he had no intention of doing any such thing. But though he was quite as brave as most fairy princes, he was not foolhardy. And there were big enchanted castles with no doors nor windows in them, and inhabited by restless monsters, dragons most likely, who had thrust their scaly black claws through the roofs. Perhaps he was a little frightened by some of the uglier shapes at first, but he soon grew used to them, and had no room for any other feelings than pride and joy, for this was fairyland at last, stranger and more beautiful than anything he could have dreamed of. He had come into his kingdom. He was going to live in that lace-book palace. Those dragons would come fawning out of their lairs presently and do homage to him. These formidable dead creatures had been slain to do him honour, 
and he was the rightful owner of all these treasures of gold and silk and gems. He must not forget, he thought, that he owed it all to the good-natured giants who had brought him here. No, when they came in, as of course they would, to pay their respects, he would thank them graciously and reward them liberally out of his new wealth. There was a silver giraffe, stiff and old-fashioned under a palm tree hard by, which must have guessed from the prince's proud gay smile that he was deceiving himself and had no idea of his real position. But the giraffe did not make any attempt to warn him, either because it had seen so many things all round it consumed in its day that the selfish fear that it too would be caught up and handed round some evening kept him preoccupied and silent, or else because, being only electroplated and hollow inside, it had no feelings of any kind. By and by the doors opened, and delicious bursts of music floated into the room, mingled with scraps of conversation and ripples of fresh laughter. Servants came noiselessly in, and increased the glare of a kind of sun that hung above the plain, and a host of smaller lights suddenly started up and shone softly through shades of silk and paper. The music stopped. The laughter and voices grew louder and came nearer. There was the sound of approaching feet, and then a whole army of mortals surrounded the prince's kingdom. They were a far smaller and finer race than the giants he had seen hitherto, with pretty fresh complexions and wearing some of them, soft shimmering dresses that he thought only fairies ever wore. After a little confusion, they ranged themselves in one long line completely round the plain. The taller beings glided softly about behind and the prince prepared himself to receive their congratulations with proper dignity and modesty. But these giants certainly had very odd ways of showing their loyalty, for they saluted him with a clinking and clattering so deafening that they would have drowned the noise of a million gnomes forging fairy armor, while every now and then came a loud report, after which a golden sparkling cascade fell creaming and bubbling from somewhere above into the crystal reservoirs prepared for it. It was all very gratifying, no doubt, and yet, though they all pretended to be honouring him, no one seemed to pay him any more particular attention. He thought perhaps they might be feeling abashed in his presence, and that he must manage to reassure them. But while he was thinking how he could best do this, he began to be aware that along the whole of the glittering plain things were being done without his permission, which was scandalous and insulting. He saw the grisly carcasses cut swiftly into pieces with flashing blades, or torn limb from limb, deliberately. All the dragons were attacked and overpowered, and hauled unresisting from the strongholds. Even the fierce hate was gashed hideously behind the ears. He tried to speak and ask them what they meant by such audacity, but he could not make them hear as he could the major and the old gypsy. So he was obliged to look on, while one by one the trophies dedicated to his glory were changed to shapeless heaps of ruin. And, unless he was mistaken, the greater part of them were actually disappearing from sight altogether. It seemed impossible, for where could they all go to? And yet nothing now remained of the huge carcasses but a meagre framework of bone, hanging together by shreds of skin, the strong castles were roofless walls with gaping breaches in them, and could it be that the more attractive objects 
were beginning to melt away in the same mysterious manner? Was it enchantment, or how? How on earth did they manage to do it? He was no happier when he found out, for though, of course, to us eating is quite an ordinary everyday affair, only think what a shock, the first sight of it must have been to a delicate fairy prince, whose mouth was simply a cherry-coloured curve, and not made to open on any terms. He saw all the treasures he had looked upon at his very own being lifted to a long line of mouths of all sizes and shapes. The mouths opened to various widths, and the treasures vanished. He could not tell how or where. The mellow ember tottered and quivered for a while and was gone. Even the solid creamy marble was hacked in pieces and absorbed. Nothing, however, beautiful or fantastic, escaped instant annihilation between those terrible bars of scarlet and flashing ivory. Could this be fairyland, this plain where all things beautiful were doomed, or had they brought him back to his kingdom, only to make this cruel fun of him, and destroy his riches one by one before his eyes? But before he could find any answers to these sad questions, he chanced to look straight in front of him, and there he saw a face which made his little sugar heart almost melt within him, with a curious feeling, half pleasure, half pain, that was quite new to him. It was a girl's face, of course, and the prince had not looked at her very long before he forgot all about his kingdom. He was relieved to see that she at least was too generous to join in the work of destruction that was going on all around her. Indeed, she seemed to dislike it as much as he did himself, for only a little of the tinted snow passed her soft lips. Now and then she laughed a little silvery laugh, and shook out her rippling gold-brown hair at something that being next to her said, a great boy mortal, with a red face, bow eyes, and grasping brown hands, which were fatal to everything within their range. How the prince did hate that boy! He found to his joy that he could understand what they said, and began to listen jealously to their conversation. I say, the boy, whose name it seemed was Bertie, was saying, as he received a plateful of floating fragments of the lacework palace, You aren't eating anything, Mabel. Don't you care about suppers? I do. I'm not hungry, she said, evidently feeling this a distinction. I've been out so much this fortnight. How jolly, he observed. I only wish I had. But I say, he added confidentially, won't they make you take a grey powder soon? They would, me. I'm never made to take anything at all nasty, she said, and the prince was indignant that anyone should have dared to think otherwise. I suppose, continued the boy, you didn't manage to get any of that cake the conjurer made in Uncle John's head, did you? No, indeed, she said, and made a little face. I don't think I should like cake that came off anybody's head. It was very decent cake, he said. I got a lot of it. I was afraid it might spoil my appetite for supper, but it hasn't. What a very greedy boy you are, Bertie, she remarked. I suppose you could eat anything? At home I think I could, pretty nearly, he said with a proud confidence. But not at all Tokos, I can't. Tokos is where I go to school, you know. I can't stand the resurrection pie on Saturdays. All the week they save up the bones and rags and things, 
and when it comes up i don't want to hear she interrupted you talk about nothing but horrid things to eat and it isn't a bit interesting end of section four